When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year, which is a podcast. Matt is looking particularly smart. I, I It's clear I never, ever wear shirts. So no. whenever I wear a shirt, then clearly something's happening. So I'm wearing a shirt. Uh, what's so, afoot? So something's afoot, isn't yes. it? It's clearly because otherwise, why would I be wearing a shirt? What's the answer? Details whenever, soon, hopefully. Um, right, let's crack on. Oh, I see. <laughs> now that, can I just say, is someone who is, I think the word is dissembling is a deflection of the of the highest uh, magnitude there from yes. me you can get in touch obviously <laughs> yes is that what you're trying to speculate say speculate on what i why i'm wearing a shirt what i should do obviously if i had any nouse is i should wear shirts more often yeah and then throw people off the scent when i wear a shirt it would be a disguise it would be yeah so basically matt if you were smarter then no one would know no, Will there be a photograph somewhere of you attending, in a shirt. A, attending a, an event? <laughs> an event. Is yeah. sherry going to be poured? <laughs> no, no sherry. Not if I have anything to do with it. Mark in North Nottinghamshire. Uh, that's his description. Yeah. You wrote to books of the year at yahoo.com because that is, I understand, how you can... It's one of the many ways you can get in contact with us, yes. Uh, you can always just call in and say hi if you want to yeah. go around to Matt's house. Yes, it's do. Uh, and if you've got a tie, you'll get in. So, Mark you know. in Bishopsthorpe. Oh, there we go. Bishopsthorpe. Thank you, Mark. Or is that his surname? Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to say He's that's from Mark Bishop in Bishopsthorpe. Okay. Yeah. Hello, Simon. Hello, Matt. Just a quick note to say how much I continue to enjoy your podcast. Continue. Nice word, yeah. I'll always have my favourite authors, Stephen King, Michael Connolly, William Boyd, but have discovered so many great authors, Thank you, uh, thanks to your recommendations. I've recently enjoyed Damascus Station, David McCloskey, who I still don't believe because he was way too Far good too good looking. Three in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And the brilliant essay... Cosby novel, All the Sinners Bleed. Uh, two books which I would not have come across had it not been for you. Keep up the good work. Uh, yes, and th- those are two books that I, I definitely say those are among my favourites that we've done this year. So uh, those are two very good choices. Uh, Siobhan uh, writes, Hi there. I just heard Louise Doughty authoritatively declare that baby puffins are called puffettes. Mm. They are not. They are actually called pufflings. Which is a much better word. It Definitely, yes. Uh, I'm sure you've received... An abundance yes. of correspondence on this subject. Love the show, Steve. Shavor. Pufflings. That sounds... The Puffettes does sound like a backing it's vocal yes. Please girls welcome. group from the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Pufflings just sounds... That makes more good. sense, doesn't it? Uh, Rachel says, um, at about 5.50 on a weekday evening, listening to a certain radio station, who I often find myself stopping and shaking my head in disagreement with, Matt's Confessions Verdict. Mm-hmm. This is um, on our radio show Drive Time at Greatest Hits Radio. That is true, seven. yes. Yeah. On the podcast, it's a different story. Earlier this year and recently on your Books of the Year, the Story So Far episode, Matt raved about Damascus Station to the point that I felt I had to find out what all the fuss was about. Uh-huh. After reading the book, I was left with a bereft feeling. 
Is there a name for this? I actually think that there is, because I think I have mentioned this before. I think I looked it up, that there is a word. I remember there for that a... feeling as you get towards the end of the book and you're slowing down because you don't want it to... Stop. Do you know what? I think it was Colson Whitehead's book that you said that about, um, uh, Underground Railroad. Underground Railroad. That, could, yeah, yeah, that yeah. could well be the case. Anyway, and now it's happened again, says Rachel. Uh, I listened to you both and Louise Doughty with Matt once more raving about a new novel, <laughs> A Bird in Winter. And I'm absolutely loving it. In fact, I'm trying to ration my reading of it because I fear that bereft feeling is approaching. So unlike Confessions, I am definitely in agreement with Aha. Matt when it comes to books and wanted to say thank you for encouraging me to choose books that I would previously have left on the shelf. P.S. Damascus Station and Colditz are currently bobbing around in a boat close to uh, Gritviken in South Georgia. I bought both for my husband to take on a long army expedition before they went out of communication, planned not anything scary, he said that there was always a queue amongst the expedition members to read both books after him. So a double win for Books of the Year. Uh, oh, right, that'll be the uh, Ben McIntyre called it. Yes, yes of course. that's a great yes. book, that was, as well. Uh, yeah. So if you want to get in touch and praise us in any way, how yes, can we do that? Yes, you uh, email. Um, I am um, absolutely hanging on to email as a means of communication. I know everyone, all, all the kids have moved off it, but uh, I still love the emails. So you can do that on booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Uh, we're still on Twitter whilst the uh, flames climb higher yes. in X. And until uh, he says you've got to pay money... In yeah. which case, we're out of there. Everyone's gone then. Uh, unlucky Elon. What kind of a gamble was that? Oh, there goes all your money. Um, at Books of the Year on Twitter, Stroke X. And we're also on Instagram and threads. You're far more uh, prevalent on, on, on threads, aren't I you? Thread, uh, yes, I thread to a, to a small but significant... <laughs> I, I like a select. To, yes, I think they're movers and shakers. <laughs> there are the masses. Yes. Who are the unwashed, uh, who, who are on Twitter. And then there's the, uh, I don't know, I think they're the, I don't know what's the right, the intelligentsia. There's a great line in um, This Is Spinal Tap where the manager is asked about why it is that the crowds at Spinal Tap's gigs have got smaller. And he says, I think the audience have just become more exclusive. Yes. And that's, uh, that's, that's very much how we what feel. it is. Anyway, and Instagram and threads, we're at Pick Any Page, aren't we? That kind of Indeed thing. we are. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk with our best-selling author guest this week, who is Victoria Hislop. And Victoria Hislop uh, is, we'll have done a big preamble, by the way, before. Oh, we don't you? just normally start like <laughs> okay. this. You know, it's a huge, huge build-up for you, by the way. Oh, how thrilling. I, I, thought, I thought it sounded unnecessarily brusque. Anyway, Victoria Hislop is with us. The figurine is the name of her latest novel. Matt will now describe the cover. Here is a cover that shouts out summer, doesn't it? Um, so, it blue, the the azure blue of... Is it the Aegean? Am I getting that it right? Is it is the Aegean. the Aegean. Stretches out in front of us uh, with some islands in the distance. But basically, the, 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 the front cover is, cover is dominated by a figurine, which is apt, because that's the title of the book, The Figurine. And then, right nestled at the bottom, uh, we've got some domes of a... And I'm now searching. I'm going to say it's a Greek church. It is. It's a Cycladic church. A Cycladic church. Cycladic church, yes. and, and we can just make out a little boat floating on the Aegean. Uh, the number one best-selling author, Victoria Hislop in, in gold and the figurine in white. And Hislop's passionate love of Greece breathes from every page, so says the Daily Mail. And I'm 100% convinced that that is Santorini. You're correct, Simon. 
because if you've been to Santorini, you never forget. Stop and then you, the s- you suddenly <laughs> notice that almost every photograph you ever see of the Greek islands yeah. is a Santorini. But it is precisely, iconic. Precisely, because of reasons like this. And just inside, you get uh, another version of the photograph, like over, over two pages, and you just think, I'm going to have yeah. to go there. I've always wondered why we use the word blue for a, quite a negative emotion. I'm feeling blue. I mean, blue makes me feel extraordinarily happy. Um, Particularly this kind of blue, which yeah. and mm. and these are the and the reason. I, so we're looking. At, the reason it's so memorable is because Santorini is a, famously a volcano which blew its top Absolutely. thousands of years ago, and mm. the volcanic bit is sort of off where in the direction that we're looking, isn't it? It is. It's submerged. I mean, Santorini is an ex, is a phenomenal place to visit from a, a sort of geological and seismological point of view. The novel's not actually no. set there. Unusually, I've made up. Um, some islands of my own in this novel, which I always forget to say, and then people send me notes saying, I really want to go to Amos next year, but I can't <laughs> find it in the brochures. And I think, oh, I'm totally so sorry, I forgot to tell you. I've fictionalised um, three different islands just to give myself a bit more um, sort of artistic licence this time. So it's easier to, to make up an island than... Yes, in some ways. I didn't want people to feel that I was being specific about a particular place this time because I've visited now 50 islands altogether and that's a very small number compared with the number of inhabited islands there are in Greece but I've, I've this year visited my 50th and there were so many small elements from different ones that I wanted to introduce which is so. your fa- uh, there's nothing to do with it which is your <laughs> which is your favorite island so far well my favorite still is Crete which is such a big island that it's almost a little country, but it, it is an island. Um, and that's where I have a house and spend a lot of time. So it's the one I know best, and I never, ever get to the end of my discoveries there. So Now, when Matt was describing the, the cover, um, and you were talking about Cyclad, a Cycladic church, and we talked mm. about the figurine, can you just introduce us the, to, the, to what Cycladic art is and the figurine... Uh, which we have on the front of the book and is the title of the book. Can you just describe what we're looking at? Yeah, well, the Cycladic Islands are named after the Greek word for kiklos, just to add some mm-hmm. kind of ancient and modern Greek here, which means circle. And they actually form a circle around a tiny island called Delos, uh, which was a very revered sanctuary, supposedly the birthplace of Apollo and Artemis. So that's why the Cyclades are called um, the Cycladic Islands, because they form a circle. And in that whole region, um, on many islands, have been found these very petite, uh, usually about nine inches long, little statuettes um, of women predominantly. 95% of these little tiny uh, um, figurines are female um, and they're very mysterious. They're dated back to around 5,000 years ago, so the early Bronze Age. And um, they're generally found in graves. So nobody really, that's a wonderful thing about them for me, is these um, figurines are quite mysterious. And that's something that always attracts me because no one will ever really know what they were for. And thousands of them have been found. um, And most of them lay buried for 
all these thousands of years. And once the archaeologists began to find them, um, they were recognised by modern artists such as Picasso and Modigliani, not only as something very beautiful, but as also inspiration for this kind of very naive, simple kind of art that really attracted them. So if you look at any Henry Moore or a Picasso or a Modigliani, you'll see something that actually resembles something from 5,000 years ago. Um, and I find these small, I think of them as small women, these very slim-lined sort of supermodel um, women made out of marble, sculpted thousands of years ago, and I find them very beautiful. Um, so, unfortunately, a lot of other people do. So, from time to time, they come up in auction, and the record for one um, was... 16 million dollars wow. so they became very valuable and therefore very stealable so there's a whole story of their uh, sort of beauty and their mystery and their importance to this ancient civilization um, and at the same time their potential for theft um, and being smuggled um, which is a big international story um, because it connects with people smuggling and drug smuggling and gun smuggling and all of these things kind of intertwine um, and make a lot of money for criminals. Uh, so we have something very beautiful at the centre of the story but she is uh, sort of representative of a, a trade in illegal goods. Um, so yes. in a nutshell, the little statuette uh, has caused a lot of trouble. So the, the figurine last. is one star, the other, and the other star is Helena, who, Indeed. Who's, who's the woman that we who we follow through. Just introduce us to her mm. and how she takes us into this story. Well, Helena is the protagonist, <clears throat> and she is half Scottish, but half Greek. Um, and this, we meet her first as a little girl, eight years old, um, and she goes to visit her grandparents in Athens for the first time. <clears throat> and this is during the 1960s when the military junta has taken over. Um, and that was a, a period of real darkness in modern Greek history. Um, three colonels took over the country and essentially ruled it for seven years uh, with a rod of iron. Um, so if you were a writer, an artist, a socialist, a left-wing activist, you were either exiled or sent to prison. So this innocent little girl, Helena, goes to visit um, for the very first time and through her kind of naive gaze, you... Obviously, at the beginning, it looks very idyllic. Blue skies, she's taken to the seaside, she eats ice cream and is in a very luxurious flat. But she begins to notice things about her grandfather, uh, which suggest there is a whole other side to this wonderful country that she's come to visit. Um, and gradually, she discovers his connection with the thefts of antiquities.
And that that really forms the context of that sort of opening to the book is her uh, experiences with her her grandfather and and grandmother there. Um, I want to ask you about that that those th- th- that very context because I hadn't read a book that was set in that time in Greece before. And um, at one point, one of the, uh, I can't remember who it is, but one of the characters, I think it might be Elena, says um, the English had a civil war and it was all over in nine years. <laughs> and yet there are ripples still being felt of this. And it reminded me when we had Robert Harris um, mm. come on the podcast to talk about um, Act of Oblivion, which was this idea that uh, everything's going to be forgotten, apart from the people who signed the death warrant for Charles I, everything else is forgotten. And I, I it got me thinking about the different ways different countries have of dealing with a civil war, dealing with a rift, Mm. because Mm. Spain's had it, South Africa's had it, America's had it, England's had it, Um, the the different ways nations deal with it. How do you think Greece has dealt with it? And do you you still see those ripples being felt now? Well, for sure, the 20th century in Greece was an extraordinarily turbulent period. Um, The early 20th century saw this huge exchange of populations which was when a million and a half refugees came in from Turkey um, in the early 20s to a country that only had 5 million people. So they suddenly had another 25%. So there was that to deal with. Uh, Then they had a military dictatorship. Then they had occupation. And then they had a very brutal civil war. After that, from the sort of 50s into the early 60s, things relatively calm for Greece. And then another military dictatorship. Uh, So they've had something almost every 10 to 12, 15 years that has turned the country upside down. And politically, um, you know, there's they still have a communist party, for example. They still have a really proper, you know, in Greece, capital K, communist party. And then they have a very far right extreme still, uh, Golden Dawn, who were you know, made illegal a couple of years ago, but are gradually creeping in under another name. So politics in Greece, that's how you know that there have been all these splits because they seem very incapable of um, even holding a single party together. As soon as you have a, a, a new political party, which happens every few years, that splits. You know, they, they, they're, they're very good at arguing <laughs> And not very good at finding, well, they find a modus operandi, but they're never really happy with it. Even if there's a, like we had in the, because I now vote in Greece, you know, I have full democratic rights as a sort of Greek citizen. So I, you know, I have to find out who to vote for. So I read up on all these parties. And when you get to vote, there are 40 or 50 on the list. I mean, it's quite absurd in my sort of old British eyes. But the current party, uh, Nea Democratia, they got an overwhelming majority. And yet the very next day, everyone's arguing fiercely. And you think, well, somebody voted for these people. <laughs> so the Greeks muddle along. Um, how they deal with the aftermath of these big splits, you know, the Civil War was a huge split. The dictatorship created a huge split is that they almost then go back to a normality and on an individual basis they live for now they go back to living for today and i think that's how they cope with it you know they they don't think 
too much about the past. They're not still talking about this dictatorship. They don't talk about the civil war. Um, and then when I bring a book out in Greece, always a few people get very really cross with me. They say, why are you, why are you bringing up our civil war? It's too early, they said, with too my early, really. previous book. Um, too early to talk about the civil war. I said, well, how, how long ago was that then? They said, 70 years. I think, I think that's probably <laughs> a good time. It's, it's, the Spain, it's the same in Spain when, mm. when their civil war uh, comes up, maybe through a film or, uh, or, through, or through a novel. Everything is open again and the sides are arguing again. And it's yes. clear that there's, you know, Franco only disappeared in the 70s, you know, so... Yeah, it the, is all the, there. Those but wounds are passed on from generation to generation. Absolutely. The wounds are, I think. But on the other hand, in their style of living for today which is very much the Greek style of living. You know, you have money today, you spend it today. Um, it suits them to have a sort of mostly to forget and to move on, um, but still to argue vociferously in the cafe. Fine. You know, okay. they, they do a lot of arguing in the cafe neon, and that's what cafe neons are for, if you've ever been to Greece. They're full of people, you know, banging the table. You think they're going to come to blows, but they're the oldest friends from you know 50 60 years um they they argue then they shake hands clink their racky glasses together and go home so broaden the family out so Hel so we're with helena in the, in the 60s and and as a child with childlike eyes and you know although she's still aware that her grandfather is a difficult character and and we are kind of thinking okay this guy's a bastard so yeah you know, we you know we you know we we've learned that so just introduce to the wider family mm. and uh and also is it arsenis or arsenis 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 there you go. i was gonna <laughs> sounds like arsenic my name my names are usually quite indicative of the the character of the person so okay yes. so just introduce to, to the broader family because it's the ripples of that that certainly uh, go through your story. Yeah. So Helena's grandmother, um, Eleni, after whom she's actually named, uh, is a very kind, uh, ostensibly very kind and sweet woman. But she has been almost married to, in some kind of arrangement, uh, to this older man um, who is Papayanis and he's a general in the army. Um, and he... I mean, Helena is, at eight years old, completely uninterested in politics, as most eight-year-olds are. Um, but she sees that this grandfather figure has a, a really dominant uh, position in the family, and you know, which is so different from her parents. She's come from really quite an idyllic family background, where she's sort of totally adored by two parents. Um, and this uncle figure who is actually the nephew um, of her grandfather, a sort of rather creepy man who sort of is clearly very close to her grandfather. So nothing is out in the open in this household. Um, and then there's the maid, Dina, who is a character who I could actually have written a whole novel about, but she is one of these... Um, young women who's been recruited from the countryside, something that happened very often in Greece at that time, um, because this is a 
the 50s in Greece were extremely poverty-stricken and a young woman could come as a maid into a family in, in Greece, in Athens, for a pittance. Um, and this particular woman, Dina, is only recruited because her family is very right-wing, so there's a sort of connection with the right-wing kind of aspect of, of this Papayanis, the grandfather's life. So, again, Helena, very naive, but little by little discovers that her mother um, basically left Greece in protest at her father's actions, this sort of brutal general, um, because she has seen, um, you know, what his politics are and her best friend suffers at the hands of her own father. So without giving away the sort of plot of the novel too much, this is... Helena finds herself in the middle of a kind of quite a politically extreme family, um, and that's not at all something she feels comfortable with. Um, and then as she becomes a teenager, she sort of is able to take some action to make some kind of recompense for what her grandfather has done. I just want to take us back to what we were talking about right at the start, which is this the the um, smuggling of uh, antiquities out of Greece, because um, early on in the book, it's it's sort of it's it's there in the shadows. We don't really talk about it that much at the start, but as we go further into the book, there's one there's one instance where a character literally leaves an island with a suitcase full of Lord knows what, and mm. and <clears throat> you, I I got the sense from that we, we we've moved from the sixties into the seventies, and I got the sense that w was there a time when it was at its worst. In other words, where People were descending on these islands and just digging it up out of the ground and I'll have that, I'll have that and I'll fill my bag with it and then I'll be off to sell it. Is it still going on now or was there a really particularly bad time? Well, unfortunately, I think it still is going on. Um, it happened, I think, more in, in the 60s and 70s because it was much easier then to sell. There weren't as many restrictions and now there are there's a, a, a UN a, um, UNESCO agreement that things that are found since the, since 1970 have to be declared and certified um, that it's permissible to take them out of the country. So there is much stricter uh, legislation now but the 60s and probably the end of the 50s which again were very um, impoverished times on these islands where people did literally live hand to mouth. So there was a trade um, and local people would know that they would somebody would come and offer them lots of money and they wouldn't say no. Very unlikely for them to say no if they were going to be given, you know, to feed their family. You know, it was literally as basic as that. And the same in Italy, where it was done on a really industrial scale. Um, because if a tomb robber knew that there was a tomb, that there was treasure inside, uh, it might not even be known to the archaeological authorities that that tomb existed. So they could literally, you know, secretively discover, you know, find these things, bring them out and sell them. And there's been a huge market. And a lot of these things disappeared into private collections. So they, they're very hard to track down. Um, because you don't, if you don't know they're there in the first place, but there are people who are very keen to have them, 
um, on their shelves in their, you know, quite often in New York, uh, in their apartments. It's hard to track down something that you don't even know is there. But gradually, these collectors have become, you know, more aware um, of the morality of what they have, and they either give them to museums or they sell them back to museums. So we are kind of getting a lot of these things back. But in the case of the figurine, um, a lot of these, uh, and in pieces, were discovered on a particular island called Keros. And I was very lucky to go on an excavation um, there and to the next door island to it. Um, and so it was explained to me by this wonderful man, Colin Renfrew, who's a Cambridge professor, that when he first visited the island, he could see, because he's an extraordinarily clever man, he could see a whole area on this um, island that had been already dug, and he could see that. Um, and eventually those pieces turned up in a collection in America and a lot of them have found their way back to Greece. So he knew that his work in some way could never be absolutely complete. He couldn't really complete his jigsaw because pieces were already missing. So um, it's a, it is a kind of cloak and dagger story. And there are various experts in stolen antiquities who are academics who track these things down. Have you held a, fig a figurine in your hand? No. I haven't, you and I'm not to? sure I would like oh. to um, because of the responsibility. I think my hands would be shaking so much that I, there would be a danger of <laughs> a danger of dropping. But I've, I've obviously seen them, and the, the Cycladic um, Art Museum in Athens has this beautiful collection, and, um, you know, you can get very close, but they're behind glass. But something worth 16 million... I, I don't think I'd want to hold it. Um, I, I suppose it gets to the heart of a very contemporary conversation, which is uh, not just where do we belong, but where does a thing belong? You know, an item from history, uh, museums by their very nature are full of bits and pieces. Some of them are from this country, but particularly in the UK, obviously they've been borrowed, bought, <laughs> taken, mm. stolen, mm. looted, whatever, you know, and... Everything is different, you know, but uh, but this goes to a heart of a very contemporary conversation. It and does. George Osborne is in charge of the uh, British Museum, and you're in, you're a very prominent person. I'm sure you've had a conversation with George Osborne. Not directly. Not directly. I've, I'd very much like to. Right. Yes, I communicate what would you with say him. To him? Um, through, funny enough, through a friend, I would say to him um, because whenever the conversation about the what the British Museum often call the Elgin marbles, um, but what some of call us them? call the Parthenon sculptures because they, these are the huge sculptures that once lived on the Parthenon temple in Athens, huge monumental things, a very different scale from the Cycladic figurine. Um, what I would say and always say, because this is my knowledge of the Greeks and my understanding of their position is that whenever there's any mention or use of the word loan, because the discussion always circulates around us lending back to Athens uh, these sculptures, that the, that word loan will 
never, ever really feature in any proper conversation because the Greeks, and in this particular conversation, I am Greek, um, they are not the British possession to loan. They do not truly belong to Britain. And this is because the British Museum bought stolen goods. Quite simply, Elgin wasn't given permission to remove the Parthenon sculptures. Um, and that's the great sort of myth about it, um, that he was given permission by the Sultan, because Greece at that time was under the Ottoman Empire. So the story that most British people believe, and I did until I sort of bothered to read a bit more about it, was that he had the Sultan's permission to remove the sculptures and to bring them back for his own house in Scotland, which was the, his intention. Um, actually, what the surviving letter uh, gives him permission to do is to take moulds so, and to take artistic impressions so that they could be reproduced um, wherever he wanted to do that. Uh, somehow from that to what then happened was he had for two years a team of people uh, hacking these sculptures off with force, with, um, you know, hacksaws and crowbars. So they were physically prized off the front of the Parthenon temple um, and some of them were broken in order to make them more transportable and he took them by sea, put them on ships and brought them back to London. One of the ships sank on the way so some of those sculptures sank to the bottom of the sea and divers had to be used to bring them up and eventually they arrived back in London. So the idea that they actually belong to Elgin is very far from the truth. Um, but when he got back, they never got as far as Scotland to the house that he was wanting to kind of show off to his friends um, because by that stage he was a bankrupt. His wife had left him um, for his best friend and he had a very expensive divorce case to deal with um, and he had no money. So the British government... Um, gave him £35,000. That's a lot of money. Well, it was a lot of money, but actually it covered his expenses. That was what the 35000 It wasn't the nominal value of the sculptures. They were sort of bailing him out. Right. Um, and the thirty-five k. it sounds a lot, but he'd spent a vast amount on this huge um, undertaking to get these things from a, a massive height get them down, two years' work, in all, you know, in his transport expenses. Um, so, and then the British Museum had them to look after from then. So, to me, the great myth that he was given permission and the way that he went about it and the fact that the British Museum has always um, taken the line that they curate them, that they were safer is, you know, I won't use an impolite word, although I would if we weren't recording it, it's complete nonsense. It's bollocks, is that what you <laughs> Oh, Simon, I can't believe, does that get bleeped? I'm glad you said it. Um, it. It's an inaccuracy in every way, and I grew up 
you know, with the idea, you know, I remember going as sort of 10 years old uh, to the British Museum and there they are in that grey, dreary Duveen gallery where they, curation is even a misnomer. You know, we, we, the Duveen, um, who was an art collector and, and he gave the money for the Duveen gallery, which is why it's so named, um, and they were scrubbed and they used wire wool to kind of clean them up. So we damaged the surface, you know, the British Museum damaged the surface of some of these great sculptures. Uh, meanwhile, 14 years ago in Athens, the Acropolis Museum was opened, uh, which is just the most beautiful museum in the world, with all these glass uh, windows that look up towards the Acropolis and you can see the Parthenon Temple from the window where there's a, a place waiting to put these sculptures. But they will never accept a loan. And George Osborne, perhaps he does understand that and he's playing some kind of diplomatic um, game. But the word loan is an insult to Greece and to the Greeks and to the Acropolis Museum because you cannot loan something that you don't truly own. Figuring is 500 pages, is it the, was it always going to be, I mean, I would just use the word epic, but was it always going to be 500 words or did the story, as you were writing it, you thinking, oh, no, I need to expand here? Yeah, no, I never know when I begin a book how long it needs to be. Um, and I think books, certainly the ones I've written, are as, as long as they have to be. One I wrote, the last one I wrote, I think was only about 90,000 words, and this is around 150,000. So I don't think there's anything spare here. Um, I'm very aware that paper costs have gone up, and publishers actually rather love shorter novels these days. Oh. So they didn't want to cut anything gratuitously. And actually, it became longer after my edits were given to me because I was told that I did need to expand a bit here and there to explain more, rather than... I quite often do this thing when I'm writing, sort of assuming that my reader is sort of right with me so they know something has happened that I haven't yet really explained fully. Well, when edit them so, makes something longer, is <laughs> Yeah, no, they, they often tell me to sort of expand a bit and not to make assumptions about what my readers know. Um, for example, how, you know, the auction... There's an auction house scene in it, um, which I actually really enjoyed writing in the end but I was asked to you know have that process really happening as though it's a kind of live scene um, in a film and that was great fun to do so no I, I hope it's as long as it needs to be and no longer because there's nothing worse than a reader feeling oh I'm just going to skip this bit I don't think there are any bits that need to be skipped um, I could write longer sex scenes but I'm always told, don't write sex well, scenes. Well, I notice your daughter is the first reader. And, and she is, is and indeed. Is, and is mentioned. I can't imagine anybody <laughs> reading a sex scene written by your mother. Yes, no, absolutely not. Your mother's never meant to have sex, let alone write about it. <laughs> I mean, it's, the, it's not a lot of... Mind you, <laughs> what, is, what is Helena thinking of? When Nick comes along, everyone goes, oh, he's no good. 
because he's greedy and she sh- anyway you know what <laughs> yeah. yeah but we're all we every i mean i think it's a life he's a badden is what I'm yeah, saying. he's he a badden and every i mean i hope your children have done the same but you it's a rite of passage to um not see something that everybody else in the world can see about a boyfriend or a girlfriend you know it's an if you can, if you go through life never making a mistake in love, you haven't really lived. Have yeah, but you? there are mistakes in love, and then there's Nick. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Love is blind, uh, Simon. <laughs> if you would like to read more, Victoria Hislop's book is called The Figurine. There will be more with Victoria uh, in a few days' time when the uh, the Q and A comes out. But for the moment, Victoria Hislop, thank you very much. Thank you both. <laughs>